morning. <clears throat> Sorry, start over. <laughs> I didn't.
So, yeah, our guest this week is uh, is J.R. Richards. J.R. is performing at the Wampus Cat Music Festival in May. Um, he's going to be on the main stage. Um, J.R. is a, a solo artist who uh, lives in England, as I understand it now, but is uh, from California and maybe known to a lot of people as the the former singer of, of Dishwalla. So uh, thank you for joining us, J.R. really appreciate you coming on. Oh, man, thanks for having me. The, the original singer. The original singer. That's right. That's right. As I understand it, they're still playing, but they have a different singer now, right? They, they do, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, okay, well, uh, really the first thing that I wanted to ask you about was just um, how you got to be involved with um, with the Wampus Cat Music Festival and the Indie on Air people. Well, um, that's a good question. It kind of came through a friend of mine. There was an artist that uh, I was, that's... Um, uh, that lives up in Michigan area that I was actually producing an EP for and um, out in England. Anyway, he, he knows as uh, Jeff Popka, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So he knows Jeff and had been talking to him about various stuff and maybe playing about this festival that he's putting together, et cetera, et cetera. So he just said, Hey, I just work with Jared from Dishwalla. Would you know, would that be, would you be interested? And Jeff's like, yeah. So anyway, that's how I kind of ended up connecting you know, networking, I guess would be the word. It was all yeah. networking. Gotcha. That's how, that's awesome. how we roll. Awesome. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I like, you know, we've mentioned Dishwalla already a couple of times, but, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people would be interested to know, you know, what are you doing now? You're a solo artist and you've done several albums as a solo artist. Tell us about, you know, your career as a solo musician. Yeah, um, it's been it's been great. I've been solo since well, my first solo album came out in two thousand nine, so it's been a while now. Um, uh, I hadn't officially left Dishwalla at that point yet, but um, you know, we went through what a lot of bands do that are together for a long time. We went through quite a few different you know uh, different members in the band, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So after right. five albums with those guys, yeah, I, I just uh, we were kind of not doing much of anything for quite a few years. So, you know, I, I, I write songs. So I was like, I'm going to continue to write and just decided to do it a hundred percent myself and enjoyed it so much. I've been doing it ever since. Is this a, a deal where you're kind of playing everything in the studio and then bringing sort of hired guns along when you play live or do you have a, a backing band? What's the, what's the setup? Yeah. I mean, it kind of evolved over time. So like the first solo album I did, I had um, like Kenny Aronoff, played drums and and Chris Cheney, you know, from Jane's Addiction played bass and and wow. uh Phil's Phil X, who's playing with, you know, Bon Jovi now, played guitar on it. Oh, Rusty wow. Anderson, who plays with Paul McCartney. I mean, it had all these like amazing people play on the first album. Yeah. Um, but then I realized I really couldn't afford to do that every time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as awesome as it was. But anyway, so I I have since um uh, I've put together a band, you know, over the years of touring and the, these guys are all amazing guys, just as good as any, anybody out there, just not as known. Um, and so they're, they're my touring band, which will be with me when I'm out uh, in North Carolina at the festival. Um, but, other, but interestingly enough, this past because of COVID issues and stuff and living in the UK, this last solo album I'm working on, I'm playing almost everything on every song. Wow. Hey, JR. Um, this is Billy. Gordon and I kind of are, are helping with all the promotion of this event. And yeah. and in looking at this lineup, um, we, we've got Everclear, Lit, Sister Hazel, you. So I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to the 90s just a little bit 
We have I'm to. Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you've been asked every question <laughs> under the sun about the 90s, but I'm just going to ask you one more. And and it does go to to counting blue cars. And and I'm just I was reading up. Uh, I mean, I Billy, I think we have the, the same glasses. I'm sorry, we have almost the same glasses. I just okay. had to throw those off for some. Yeah, yeah, these these are. Uh, hey, <laughs> all right. It's like old guys yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I was going to say is is uh, I grew up on your music and and this kind of music in the '90s, so it's really cool to be talking to you right now. But but awesome. going back to to that one song, it, it was such you know it was such a staple uh, on '90s radio, and and I just I'm curious. What does a song like that, how does that change your life and the trajectory of your band at the time? Because, you know, a lot of bands are, I I don't know if they're all aiming for, for that, those heights there, but when you hit it, I can't, I can't imagine that, that your life's ever the same after that. Oh, no. I mean, it's, it definitely, it changes everything. I think when you have a song that ends up blowing up that big. Because it really is kind of the difference between putting out an album on a major label and then, you know, you you leave the label and you go off and have a normal, you know, job and normal right. life, yeah. I guess. But that one definitely kind of kept, has has really that one song alone and in a lot of ways has kind of maintained the ability for the band, even after I've left as the singer and the songwriter to still go and play shows and and, you know, generate enough income for people to survive. So it's an amazing thing. I mean, I, I don't, I feel, I appreciate it much more now than I did then. Cause I was, you know, 20, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you're like, dude, this is awesome. You know, I, I can, you know, I can buy some beer and I can put some gas in my tank. This is cool. But I think that, um, you know, in hindsight and understanding the music business, I realize how, how difficult it is to, to do that and how, how much kind of luck in the universe as well as a good song and good people around it, you know, promoting it can, can really make something happen and, and change the course of a lot of people's lives and careers. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The, uh, the like I said, this lineup, it's, uh, it, uh, there's 90 bands and, and they, they cross all genres and, and right. uh, what Jeff's putting together here is pretty ambitious, but, but really the headliners of this are, are you and, and bands like Everclear and Lit. And um, I, I guess Everclear kind of started out on the West Coast too. Or, um, are you pretty f- familiar with, I mean, did you play a lot of shows with them? Uh, we, I mean, we did. cross paths a lot, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because obviously with all those bands, just because we were all kind of doing and 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 starting out at the same time and, and getting some notoriety all around at the same time. We, uh, of course we'd like to see each other at festivals Everclear though. We did play, uh, you know, like a run of shows with them all the way did like a West coast tour all the way up into Vancouver, Canada. So, you know, super, super nice guys. Um, and, uh, yeah, it definitely comes from that kind of West coast kind of vibe. I mean, that song Santa Monica obviously is kind of, you know, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Encapsulates their their kind of their vibe, I think. But uh yeah, it'd be cool. I mean, I'll have to to go and see if I can find any of these guys backstage and say hello. Reading about you, you know, I've learned that you started playing music very young, you even started writing songs very young. And I'm just curious, being like nine years old, what what kind of what artists were were appealing to you as a nine-year-old that made you say, you know, I want to go out and write songs myself. What were you, what were you listening to then that inspired you? Well, um, I, you know, I think you kind of by default, I'm sure you guys will appreciate this. I, you know, so much of what we listen to as kids or what our parents listen to. Yeah. 
so God, you hope that your parents have some decent taste, you know? <laughs> Um, but, uh, I mean, my father was very much, he was a musician himself and you know, he was teaching me piano when I was four or five years old. So, uh, uh, so he was introducing me to primarily songwriters, which is interesting. It wasn't about, um, you know, rock bands and stuff as much as it was about, you know, Jim Croce and James Taylor and John Denver and the Beatles and that kind of thing. And really discussing like why these songs are so powerful, great, and timeless. So, yeah, it was Mostly that. And then, I, and then, then as I got older, I, you know, all of a sudden it was like, whoa, ACDC, yeah. you heard of this band. This is amazing. You know, Queen, what the hell is this about? This is amazing. Yeah. You know, um, I, I definitely uh, started to find my own thing and I got into techno for a big time. I was a huge, you know, Depeche Mode fan and, Cure oh, yeah. and all that stuff like that. I, I, so, because being a piano player also, I was really into like, oh, you can be cool and play piano and, you know, also, <laughs> So, yeah, it's a little a smattering of everything, but um, uh, and even more so these days, because my dad passed uh, about 14 years ago, I guess, and maybe even longer now, 16. maybe. And uh, I've been I've been remembering all these songs that he taught me as a kid. And I've, I've been doing I've been out doing these these like solo acoustic tours. So I've been playing songs that he taught me when I was a kid, you know, like Country oh, wow. Roads by John Denver. Oh, wow. and, every, and I noticed that everyone in the room whether you're five or you're a hundred knows the song is singing it and crying. Yeah. So, you know, cause every, it's just these powerful, these songs that they, they're just, you know, amazing and timeless. So yeah, that's, that's where I come from, you know, and then I ended up being in this nineties pop rock band. So go figure. Well, I, I think that's, you know, uh, you bring up a point that I think about a lot. People say that, you know, as you get older, the music that you kind of, that your personality kind of congeals around ends up in a lot of cases being that stuff from the, uh, that hooked you in the first place. And I yeah. think that's interesting that you mentioned like Jim Croce and John Denver and those things. And here you are, you, you were in this band that did the pop rock thing and now you're doing the sort of singer songwriter thing. Is that something that you've thought about at all? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's, I mean, I always like really good songs. And I think even with Dishwala, it was always trying to make sure that the songs fundamentally were good songs. Right before we kind of wrapped them into, you know, the, the lens that is Dishwalla um, and, or filter, I guess you should say these days, everything's a right. filter, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that has always been kind of like the number one thing I think. And I, and I look back in hindsight too, a lot of the songs that don't really translate that well are ones that are maybe not that great of songs. <laughs> you know, I've certainly written my share of shitty songs. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, go ahead, Billy. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say that kind of leads into uh, I don't know if this is your most recent work, but it's definitely recent work, which was your covers album. And I got a kick out of that because you you covered everything I love from David Bowie to Pearl Jam to the Righteous Brothers. And I, I want to know um, uh how'd you narrow the songs to make that list uh, what and what even inspired you to want to do a, a covers album like that yeah uh that's a good question i think um well i mean as you i mean you guys are obviously music guys so you know i mean it's yeah. how do you come up with that desert island you know 10 song list it's difficult because there's so many amazing songs out there so yeah, it was difficult. My list was probably like 80 songs that I somehow managed to get down to like 12 or 13. But um, part of it was I, I had, cause I would play songs occasionally um, in different scenarios, you know, I might cover something and it just turned out really good, felt really good, a good song that I liked. And so then people would ask me, gosh, you know, I'd love to get your version of it. 
Um, so I tell you, I'll, I'll record that and release that at some point or do it anyway. But after years of that, I just started realizing there was about a half dozen songs that I promised people I would record <laughs> and give to them. Yeah. So, well, if I do that, I might as well add a few more and I'll just, I'll just release it as an album and just have some fun with it. And, uh, you know, but I mean, as, you know, d- doing a covers album is always a little weird just because all the songs that I chose are all amazing and perfect in their own right. So it's really I mean, how do you, you, it's not like you're trying to make a better version of anything. You're just trying to make uh, hopefully a, a worthy version of, of the song in your own way. You, you've had a lot of songs uh, appear on TV shows. And um, I wasn't quite sure in my reading if, if you actually wrote the songs for those shows, if that was a situation where somebody approached you and was like, you know, do you have some music that you can give us? Um, is, is that a process? Do you write for TV or, or did you just end up in a situation where people were asking you for music and you, and you had stuff to give them? That's a good question. I, it really depends. I mean, um, a lot of, a lot of the people who are the musical supervisors for TV shows, you know, um, like we had remember, um, I remember the name of Smallville, uh-huh. TV show, right. We ended up having three songs on that. And, the lady who was the musical supervisor was just a huge fan of the band and stuff. And so she would sort like got find songs and go have them in the back of her mind and go, this would be great for such and such scene. So a lot of times it would just kind of happen in kind of an organic that way, a way that in, in that fashion. But, but then some, and so most of the time, I think it was really that it was just somebody would, who is looking for music for a movie or a TV program would, would uh, have, have heard one of the songs, you know, so it wasn't written specifically for it. Um, I mean, we had a song on American pie and we actually, as a band wrote a song for that, uh, for that, for that show, for that movie uh-huh. um, after watching the movie itself without any, had just dialogue, oh, wow. and any music to it, but. I remember thinking, you know, this is hilarious. What a, what a cool song that we actually wrote something <laughs> bespoke for that. But I mean, but I, you know, but then lately, like, I don't know if you know, but, but uh, uh, Baywatch has remastered all of their stuff because they, they didn't have any of the licensing to any of the original songs that they had for their, all their nine seasons. And oh, they, wow. didn't, they didn't foresee that there would be this thing streaming and, and download. So they never bought the licenses for any of those songs. And so, every episode of Baywatch has like two or three different montages where it's just a song, a hit song, current song of the time, full blast while people run around with hot bodies in slow motion. Right. (laughs) That was like their thing. Right. I mean, you were waiting for that spot. It was like good times. But uh, anyway, so then they, they, but then all of those, like for, there's a reason you weren't seeing them on Netflix and, and, um, you know, Amazon and stuff like that. They didn't have the rights to it. So anyway, some company came in, bought the rights to it, and then decided we'll buy a few of the songs, but there's about 430 songs. We'll buy about 30. And then we've got 400 songs we need to replace. So they went out and a friend of mine is the guy that scored the original Baywatch. He called me and he's like, how many songs can you write in six months? You know, (laughs) so I ended up writing 20 songs for Baywatch, but they had to fit specifically a scene that had already been cut to another song wow so you'd be you know replacing like you know boys of summer by don henley and you're trying to fit all these things and write a song that sounds kind of like it but it's not it so you don't get sued anyway so yeah i've kind of been on both sides of it where somebody just shows up and picks a song because they love it and and that's awesome and then sometimes where it's like you have to write something super specific for um 
you know, a, a particular show or something like that. So I'm really fascinated by the idea of that, that process where you're, you're writing and I mean, you're obviously experienced as a songwriter, but you have a different sort of impetus. And uh, is that a challenge to, to do those things that you were talking about to make it fit or have you been doing it long enough that it's just sort of what comes or, out? Or is it easy? Or is it easier when someone gives you a cue and says, "Match this"? I, I don't know. It might be yeah. easier. Yeah, I think it's easier when somebody gives you a specific cue. I mean, it's still difficult, um, but uh, but it takes some of the the guessing out of it. You know, when you have certain things you have to hit because that's. You know, especially with the Baywatch thing, because they would literally give me a, an episode and they'd say, all right, you know, we need a two and a half minute piece. It's got to fit all these things and we need it, you know, day after tomorrow, mixed and mastered, you right. know, and, and not only written and recorded, but mixed and mastered. And so that was always yeah, a huge challenge. It's a little yeah. stressful. Well, um, Jared, we, we usually try to go about 20 minutes with these. So we just got a couple more questions for you. Yeah. And, and we sure. really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, um one of the things I was really interested in, in learning more about you was uh, this thing you you have called Green Room, where it looks like you've you found a way to not only kind of engage your fans, um, but they also become kind of part of the experience uh, of the of recording an album and and get to watch you from beginning to end. Uh, I, I I know it's not maybe a unique idea, but it's it's a pretty cool idea. What uh, what led to you uh, launching Green Room? Uh, I think it's just seeing, well, you know, it's it's this new era of being an indie musician and trying to figure out how to survive and and different ways of, you know, um, and I hate to say marketing yourself because it just sounds so awful, but yeah, that's uh, what it is. But it, <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, but it's also looking at people that really enjoy what you do as an artist and then trying to bring them more into your whole experience um, in a way that, that also benefits you because it helps kind of support you and keep you doing, sorry, we got the, uh, of course the gardener just showed up. The leaf <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, cause I've seen a lot of other artists, you know, it's have Patreon pages or things like that. I have my thing called the green room and it's, there's different levels you can, you know, depending on how, in, you know, involved you want to be in what I'm doing. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's just a cool way to, if you're a fan to get more, uh, just kind of get closer and more kind of deeper, you know, behind the scenes and material, material. I, I, I release a lot of stuff that I, you know, that nobody's ever heard those kind of things. So it's just, it's turned out to be a really cool thing. And it's kind of created more of a community around and kind of culture around what I do musically. Um, and, you know, like I was saying, I, I do, I've been doing living room tours for the last nine months, Wow. you know, um, and which has been amazing. You know, I never considered going to somebody's house and just pulling up and playing acoustically in somebody's living room for, you know, two to 20 people. And, and it's just been amazing. But again, another way to kind of keep the music going and, and kind of, you know, keep the lights on. That awesome. makes sense. And uh, it doesn't get strange at all playing and visiting somebody's house and doing that. <laughs> I've, I've only had one weird experience. I've done about 45 of these and I've only had one okay. weird experience. I mean, it was a little, it was a lot. And it was an innocent weird. It was kind of more like, okay. Oh, you're a, you know, you're a hoarder. I get it. <laughs> wow. Nice. Where am I going to play? You know, you're yeah. walking through like aisleways of stuff, you know, that's yeah. built up in their living room and, and you know, anyway, but yeah. 
bless their heart. Yeah. All good. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on here and, and taking some time out of your schedule to talk to us. I did want to close with one question and also give you an opportunity to share where people who are listening can find your music. Um, I can find it. Christ's sake. Sorry, go ahead. I'm just curious about your set these days. Do you focus on um, current stuff? Do you play stuff from the past? Is it a mix? And, you know, after you answer that, just, you know, if you could share where people can, can find more of your music. Sure. Yeah, I, I, it's a mix. It's kind of a 50-50. So obviously I play a bunch of stuff that I wrote and sung while I was in Dishwalla because that's hugely important. Um, you know, a lot of people come and see me for that. And then uh, and then part of it's solo stuff and then part of, part of it's some of those occasional, you know, covers that I've done that I enjoy singing to. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of encapsulates my show right there. Awesome. I think, uh, oh yeah. And then in terms of finding stuff, it's just going, you can go to jrrichardsmusic.com, just all one word, jrrichardsmusic.com. And that is the gateway to everything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And it's all on all the streaming services and all that as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm on everything. So yeah, you know, I should be easy to find. It's just whether or not it's J.R. Richards or J. Period R. Richards, you know, J. Right. Richards. So yeah. But yeah. anyway. The algorithms are pretty smart these days. and Yeah, I know. It's starting to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
monster-sized impact on our little community here in Sanford and Lee County. Yeah, uh, you were up there. For those who don't know, and I'm sure everybody does, we have a Vietnamese electric car maker who's going to build just this insanely large campus in Moncure, North Carolina, <laughs> and uh, employ between 7,500 and 8,000 people and invest uh, over $4 billion in doing so. Um, I've driven... I had to drive to Apex a couple times a week uh, for kids' practices and stuff. And I was driving there yesterday on US-1, and I pointed to the area between Pea Ridge Road and Lower Moncure. No, wait, no. Pea Ridge Road and, I guess, New Hill in that area. And I pointed to it and said uh, to the kids, that's where that huge electric car plant's coming. Moncure... <laughs> so, um, and in doing so I looked at it and just said I can't imagine it like I can't imagine what that area between Apex and Deep River is going to become in the next 10 to 15 years because Man, I don't even think 10-15 years like 3-4 they're going to be rolling out vehicles second quarter of 2024 but I guess what I meant by that is you're going to have the plant first but then I think it's going to lead to other things. It's going to lead to more housing in that area. It's going to lead to probably, I don't know how it starts. Maybe it starts with a few gas stations here and there, and then then you add restaurants, and then you know, you've got the subdivisions that are going up around it. I just think for whatever's been a stretch of highway that's been nothing but lined by pine trees and oaks um, is going to become much different in the next like you say three to five years it's it's going to be unrecognizable i remember when i first moved to sanford first got here and i drove from rdu to sanford in a rental car and looking around and and just uh really liked that drive like i said it's lined by trees and there's really not a whole lot to see between apex and sanford and um i think that's just not going to exist anymore it's going to become and it's going to become an extension i guess of of the raleigh area up until you reach deep river i think yeah nothing wrong with yeah. that i'm just saying it's just going to be different <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a uh, big change is coming you got a chance while you're up there to actually see the cars yeah they look pretty cool i'm not re- really a car guy i'm not I'm, either I, I don't i don't know how much i can tell you about you know the features but 
I did ride in a Tesla recently, and that was something else. Yeah. So if uh, these are anything like that, you know, they're yeah. going to be quality vehicles. I've been in a few electric cars, and I'm always uh, taken aback by when you stop in them. It just sounds like the whole I – mean, there's no engine running, I guess. And so yeah. They it have feels to, like you're dead. <laughs> they They have to generate noise, like, because they're so quiet. They have to generate some kind of noise. I don't know if it's for the benefit of the driver or benefit of pedestrians walking nearby, but that's that's something I learned recently that's absolutely bonkers to me. But I think when people hear VinFast, they think, oh, I've never heard of that before. It must be some kind of, uh, you know, cheap <laughs> Fiat type thing. But from the pictures I saw, they look like nice vehicles i think and i think uh maybe it was in your story or maybe it was in another story i read uh they're going to run between 36,000 and 40 something thousand dollars and maybe yeah, lower maybe i don't lower. know from what i understand i asked if i should have heard of vinfast before this and i was told no you you should not have they're relatively new um but from what i understand you know their aim is not just to make quality electric vehicles but also to you know kind of compete with other manufacturers and in so doing you know lower the price for these things that's that's one of the things that keeps coming up in the electric car debate is well you know these are expensive vehicles the average person can't afford them well you know as more people get in the game and advancements are made they will become more affordable it's like when tvs came out nobody could afford a tv and now I have, I don't know, four TVs in my house that are nicer than anything Ooh. I've ever had in my life. Well, and look at you, man. They're four all like, TVs. Yeah, I know, man. <laughs> I've only got two. <laughs> Let's see, one, two. We no, just I, bought the second one. I, know, I, have, I have three. I have three. They're all they're all nicer than anything I've ever had, and the, none of them cost more than like two, three hundred bucks. That's kind of how I see the electric vehicle thing unfolding over the long term. When I went to college, I brought a little handheld antenna black and white TV with me <laughs> for my yeah. dorm. It only lasted a few months before my roommate said, we need a real TV. And he went and bought one. But yeah, I've gone from that to to big screen, high def. Yeah, get a, a little more on the mic and get breathy when you say big screen, high def. I've gotten a little more big screen, high def. Or were you telling me to not do that? No, I was telling you to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited about it. And like I said, I we've got this big feature coming up in the next edition that is all about what's going to what Sanford's going to look like in the next three to five to ten, all the way up to thirty years. And I'm not going to give away a lot of it on here because some of these numbers are amazing, but just the projection of what this area is going to look like in 30 years is, is pretty impressive. And uh, there's just so much, there's so much to do it. Like we're going to have about a 3000 to 4,000 word story in the next edition. And I don't even think it covers 25% of, of what we need to be writing about on this. Cause 
we do our best to, to talk about the subdivisions that are coming and how the city and the county are trying to prepare for this in terms of, uh, you know, services and schools and things like that. But there's just so much to this that, that, um, that needs to be written. And I think we'll probably be writing about this for the next three to five years. One of the interesting things, though, is it, it took me back to 2010, 2011, I think, and maybe it was 2012, when the word BRAC was a huge topic of debate, or it was just a huge topic, I guess, in Sanford. And I went to several business meetings and government meetings where they talked about BRAC, which is base realignment and closure. And that's when you had all these uh, bases throughout the U.S. that were closing, and a lot of those um, military families were coming to Fort Bragg. And Fort Bragg was um, the areas surrounding Fort Bragg were preparing for this just influx of families and Sanford, Harnett County, Lee County, Cumberland County and, and areas like Clinton were all prepared for just this huge influx of people. And I think I haven't gone back and read the old stories, but I think Sanford was expecting thousands of families to, to come and that didn't necessarily happen for us. We had prepared for that, and I think the growth did move north of Cumberland County, and it really affected Spring Lake, and there's this community between um, South Sanford and Spring Lake. I can't remember. It's the Buffalo Lakes area. I can't remember what the, mm -hmm. the actual um, – Spout Springs. Spout thank you. Um, and that's grown considerably. You drive through there now, and there's a whole – shopping commercial residential area that sprung up just in the last 10 years that wasn't there before but that's where it stopped i think it didn't really hit us as much as we thought it would and so i say in the story that we've we've been preparing for this kind of growth for over a decade now and this looks like the real thing though this looks like it's really happening um, just the the land that has been raised already for these new homes um, is unlike some, anything we've ever seen in Sanford in the last 20, 30 years. The last time we had any kind of growth like this was between 1990 and 2000. And I don't know what happened then to, to cause the, the growth then, but we haven't seen anything like this since then. And, uh, and the other interesting thing I learned is that Lee County's projected growth of 37% in the next 30 years is actually greater than North Carolina's overall projected growth. And it's more in line to what uh, people are expecting in Wake County too. So I think Lee County is about to have its time and it looks like it's really happening now. <laughs> so uh, um, there's people who are very happy about this and there are people who are not very happy about this, but it's coming. It's coming.